Welcome to Treks in Sci-Fi, the special alien cast. My name is Al Kessel, and you know me better as Quadshot from the forums, and I host the uh, Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland podcast, and Just Because podcast with my lovely wife, Joyce, and I'm also one of the co-hosts of the MASH 4077 podcast with Kenny, better known as Geeky Fanboy, and uh, Meds, better known as Hawkeye Meds. And uh, joining me today is a really great guy. I think you all know him very, very well. He's the guy who doesn't like to wear a shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Brian. Hello, Al. Hello, everyone in Trex and Sci-Fi Land. It is Brian, your uh, your uh, collectible reviewer from Rico's show. And uh, yes, often a shirtless reviewer. <laughs> and uh, after listening to Al's uh, podcast resume, boy, I feel like a woeful underachiever. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm one of the longest running members of the Treks and Sci-Fi Forum who doesn't have a podcast. So it's very, very exciting for me today to actually be uh, such an uh, integral part of uh, one of Rico's shows for the very first time um, after all these years. So mm-hmm. it's uh, happy to be here, Al, and uh, happy to be talking about really what is one of my all-time top five favorite movies uh, and uh, a movie that had a lot of influence on me as a kid and I think a lot of influence on one of our favorite genres of science fiction and, and of horror films. And uh, let's face it, in space, no one can hear you scream. That's right. <laughs> awesome segue. Awesome segue. Well, uh, as, uh, as Brian alluded to on this very special guest star episode of your favorite geeky podcast, we're going to discuss the awesome and wildly, what I call cult, popular 1979 horror sci-fi film Alien. This is the one that started it all. Now, we're going to give you kind of a Reader's Digest version of the story. Then uh, Brian has some unbelievable behind-the-scenes stuff and uh, some other interesting tidbits on how this incredible film has affected the entire genre and uh, the the impact that this had on just about really everybody. I mean, anywhere you look in the, in the sci-fi world, you can see little bits and pieces that this movie left behind. Yeah, I mean, really, a long legacy of, from a stand, from a stylistic standpoint to a thematic standpoint, um, and certainly, you know, put put Ridley Scott on the map as uh, as one of the premier directors of of not only science fiction films but of films in general. So yeah, it, it certainly had a, a, a real lasting impact, and a, a lot, an impact that actually you know owes owes a lot. And we'll we'll touch upon this as we talk about about the production of the film. It owed, owed a tremendous debt to Star Wars, uh, like so many films did in the late 70s. Um, um, after the success of Star Wars, everyone was falling over themselves to have their own science fiction property and film. And uh, Alien, Alien sort of came out of, out of that, whole, that whole genre, that whole world of, of the post-Star Wars um, Hollywood uh, interest in science fiction. And uh, certainly was an int- a really interesting and unique sort of look at it after coming, out, uh, coming from Star Wars. That's true. And a little, maybe little known fact, at least it was a little known fact to me, um, the, the, the uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture actually owes its existence to Star Wars, believe it or not. Oh yeah, well they they were going to, they were going to do that phase that phase two television series project that Gene Roddenberry had been developing since seventy five or seventy six, and then when Star Wars hit big, Paramount was like, "Hey, wait a minute, what do we have?" Uh, that's a, that's a side, and the same exact thing with um, with Alien. Twentieth uh, Century Fox saw Star Wars hit, and we're like. All of a sudden, we're scrambling to find. Mm-hmm. Hey, do we have any prop, any science fiction movies that are close to production? And uh, Alien just happened to be sitting on their desk. 
That's right. And they're definitely, they, they prove that there was a market for this. Yep. So why don't we begin this very special uh, episode with a special treat by our good friend, Rick Moyer. It is completely enclosed. And it's full of leathery objects, like eggs or something. Well, you can tell by the way our ship is docked. I'm a space explorer, astronaut. Space is cold and the suit is warm. But check it out, could be a lot more. Venture in, it's okay. Turn on the light and look this way. Big statue and crazy sound. There's a big cavern underground. Being chased by a feather or an alien mother. You're staying alive, staying alive. See the slime dripping and the people all slipping and we're staying alive, staying alive. High, 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 staying alive, staying alive. I try, 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 staying alive. Well, now it's over my head and over my eyes, attached to my face. I'm just a guy. Coming to dinner with an ache in my gut A bloody C-section, junior pops with a cut You know it's real gross, it's scary Another crew made for us to bury We can't run, we can't hide But while those teeth and the ones inside Being chased by another or an alien mother We're staying alive, staying alive See the slime dripping and the people all slipping And we're staying alive, staying alive I, 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 staying alive
I should reach the frontier in about six weeks. With a little luck, the network will pick me up. This is Ripley, last survivor of the Nostromo. Signing off. Well, that was uh, that was fun. <laughs> anyway, um, Alien, nineteen seventy nine. Now we had some uh, some kind of interesting breakout characters. I think uh, this was long before some of these uh, actors actually became big and famous. Uh, playing uh, Captain Dallas, the the whole leader of the expedition, was a, at the time kind of a little known actor by the name of Tom Skerritt, who went on to play some pretty big roles. Uh, mainly character actor roles later on. Uh, John Hurt played Kane. Sigourney Weaver played Ripley, which was really her breakout role for sure. Uh, Veronica Cartwright uh, played Lambert, and I would be hard-pressed to know what she's played in since then. Oh, the birds. Uh, Oh, yeah, there you go. Uh, Harry Dean Stanton, uh, one of the ultimate character actors, uh, played Brett. Ian Holm, uh, who went on to be... uh, a very famous Hobbit. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, uh, played Ash. Yafet Koto played Parker. Bolaji Badeo played the alien. I bet you didn't know that, did you? I did. <laughs> <laughs> he was a Nigerian design student who Ridley Scott spotted in a pub, and he was seven foot two, very very slender. And uh, at that point, they had the suit sort of planned out, and uh, he knew he would fit into it. So he uh, tapped him on the shoulder and said, "Hey, mate, want to be in a movie?" You know, that doesn't surprise me. That yep, that's, that's a true story. And, you know, speak, um, Veronica Cartwright not only was in the, in the Birds, but she was also in Invasion of the Body Snatchers in 1978. Oh, that's right. In the remake of it. That's yep. right. Very good. Um, Very good. And John Hurt, you know, John Hurt as Kane, he, he was actually, he, he came on after the original uh, actor, John Finch, uh, was cast in the role as Kane originally. And John, on the first day of shooting, fell incredibly ill with some sort of viral infection. And there are scenes on the uh, making of DVD where you can see him in the command se- in the command cockpit of the Nostromo. And it- the guy looks like he's about to just vomit. He's a mess. <laughs> and so they had to pull him from the production. And Ridley Scott drove to John Hurt's house and begged and pleaded with him to come and fill the role. And he did. Um, you know why Finch you know, Finch was actually practicing for his, uh, you know, bursting of the chest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and y- 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 Yafit Koto was actually, he was probably the biggest name of all of them at the time when they started making the film. Um, Yafit had just come off of being the villain in the James Bond movie, uh, um, Live and Let Die. Awesome. Yep. Yeah, he's he's an awesome he's an awesome uh, character actor as well. Yep. Um, the voice of Mother, the computer, was played by Helen Horton. Didn't now, know that. Yeah, this was a uh, based on a story by uh, Dan O'Bannon and uh, Ronald Shusett. Shusett. That's it. Uh-huh. And of course, everybody knows, directed by the comparable, incomparable Ridley Scott. Yeah. Incomparable. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now the story goes something like this. In the distant future, while returning to Earth, the crew of the deep space mining ship Nostromo are awakened from hypersleep by the ship's computer, aptly named Mother, to investigate a strange signal from a nearby planet. While Dallas, the captain, Kane, and Lambert head out to investigate the odd transmission, Ripley discovers that the signal was not an SOS, but in fact, a warning. 
Cue seriously weird music. <laughs> now, as the trio of adventurers venture out, they come across a huge spaceship. Now, I mean huge spaceship that looks like it's been there for quite a long, long time. Now, as they enter the huge derelict, they come across an enormous alien creature who we all know and love as the space jockey sitting in the pilot's chair. And of course, now he's kind of fossilized, you know, the the old ELO song, Turn to Stone. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Dallas notices that there's a hole in the jockey's chest with the rib bones protruding outward, as if something burst through the chest. Hmm, how odd. Bones have been outward. Like he exploded from inside. I wonder what happened to the rest of the crew. Let's get the hell out of here. This is the point where I'd be, I gotta go. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. It's it's like at this point, you gotta think, you know, I left a kettle boiling yeah. and uh, back in the ship and I gotta take off. But instead, let's lower Kane down into that big pit. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So Kane climbs down into uh, through the hole that's beside the chair and discovers this massive, massive chamber with thousands of leathery looking eggs. So he decides to investigate these odd things and in a move that could win him the Darwin Award of the century, (laughs) he decides to stick his face directly over one that has some movement inside and boom, this odd looking creature that looks like a giant crab well, I'll never eat crab again now, thanks. All right. <laughs> Pops out and attaches itself to Kane's face. <laughs> I didn't see that coming, did you? <laughs> <laughs> so Dallas and Lambert rush Kane back to the ship. They talk the science officer, uh, science officer Ash into opening up the hatch, despite Ripley's orders to the contrary. No. I can't do that. And if you were in my position, you'd do the same. Ripley, this is an order. Open that hatch right now. Do you hear me? Yes. Ripley, this is an order. You hear me? Yes, I read you. The answer is negative. In a hatch open. And they attempt to remove the hand thingy from Kane's face, which really is harder than it looks, as it turns out. The thing shoved the tube down Kane's throat, and and it's feeding him oxygen while keeping him in a coma. So what does Ash decide to do? Hey, let's cut off one of those finger thingies. <laughs> and he discovers that this thing has acid for blood. What a, and what a great construct. I mean, what a great idea to, to make it so that you can't cut it off. And it, it just limits your options. It was so well done when they yeah. did that. Yeah, I mean, they. You're right. I mean, they thought of just about everything that that you could think of. It was just, it was just amazing. Mm-hmm. But eventually, of course, the finger leg thingy falls off of Kane and dies, and then Kane wakes up. Party time! <laughs> <laughs> Let's go get something to eat. <laughs> Let's go get something to eat. And speaking of eating, as they have a last meal, get it, last Literally. meal, <laughs> before hitting the sleep chambers again, Kane begins choking and gagging and starts to convulse. Now, of course, the crew thinks that he's eaten some bad chicken or something, but uh, that's not the case. As the crew attempts to hold him down on the table, one of the most infamous scenes in all of science fiction takes place here. What's the matter? <laughs> Food, 
juvenile alien bursts out of the guy's chest snarls at everybody and then heads out of the mess hall inspired yes very inspired i that was probably one of my favorite scenes it was just and probably to this day i mean to this day people still cite that as one of the most like startling um, oh, yeah. images ever in film because it was just no one had ever thought of doing something like that uh, before and it was so effective <laughs> it was it was yep. when i saw that little guy sticking his head out I, my first thought was oh i want to take him home and pat him <laughs> yeah i got i got some great stories about the filming of that scene coming up for you guys oh, <laughs> can't wait to hear that now after uh after they decide to uh, mummify Kane and you know blast him out into space, the crew decides to split up and hunt the mother. No, I mean that's the computer. They decide <laughs> to hunt the creature down and kill it. And this is where the fun begins. Oh yeah, Ripley, Parker, and Brett all head off into one direction as Dallas, Ash, and uh, Lambert head off in another. Each team is armed with a motion tracker, a cattle prod on steroids, and a net. Ripley's team catches something on the tracker, and they discover it's actually Brett's cat, Jones. Oh, Ripley's cat, Jones. Yeah. (laughs) Very cool. (laughs) Jonesy is Ripley's cat. That's awesome. Now, Brent, clueless as he is, decides to uh, let Jones go. And, uh, of course, Ripley and Parker scream at him and tell him they have to bag this cat so it doesn't show up on the tracker again. So, Brett heads out to die. I I mean, uh, Brett (laughs) (laughs) heads out to Brett heads out to catch Jones, then meets the alien and and dies. Well, yeah, now he dies <laughs> horribly. Now, in the uh, the 2003 re-release of the film, Ripley and Parker hear Brett scream and arrive just in time to see the alien dragging Brett off. Pretty mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, there was a, and I'll, I'll get into that a little bit about when we talk about the the film and its final uh, final theatrical version as it came out. But a couple of there were there was a lot of back and forth as to. What was actually going to be, what was going to happen to the victims of the alien, whether or not the alien was going to kill them all or, or do something else with them, which is what happened in the re-release and the um, mm-hmm. alternate scenes that came out um, with the film. But we, we can get into that later. But yeah, right. at the time of the original theatrical release, when Brett was attacked, it, clearly his, the alien's tongue goes into his head and he's clearly dead. So <laughs> sort of the, the, the inference anyway. Yeah. Well, they had to be careful not to show the tongue too much because, you know, it was 1979 and they weren't allowed yeah. to show tongue and kissing scenes. <laughs> <laughs> so now they all regroup and they realize that the alien is using the air shafts to move around in. So Dallas, the brave guy that he is, in fact, he goes on to be a Top Gun flight instructor. <laughs> That's right. That's right. What was his name? In, oh, oh, what was his name? What was his call sign in Top he Gun? He was... Um, Joker? Je- uh, no, Jester. Jester, right? Thank yeah. you. <laughs> so he decides to be the one to go in with a flamethrower and attempt to drive the bugger into the airlock and then out of the space. While Lambert, 
tracks the area. Yeah, that was a good idea. Let her boy, track him. <laughs> but boy, how how effective was him crawling around in those tunnels? Oh, you just watch you just you're dying because you just know it's going to end badly. <laughs> oh, exactly. Anytime, anytime that kind of stuff happens. Um, like I said, Lambert is the one the track, but I don't understand why didn't Dallas take the tracker with him? <laughs> Well, he had to carry the flamethrower, and he, you know, he had he he's kind of it made sense. It makes sense, and um, you know that they would have the trackers on one side and the other, so that they could keep an eye on him. And uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it it just it just who cares? It makes the scene so tense. It you know? does. It does. It's incredible. And, and honestly, uh, Veronica Cartwright does such a good job of being freaked out. Yeah. You know? yeah. So Dallas enters the air shaft. He scoots around a bit, and then eventually they pick up a blip on uh, Lambert's uh, old radar thingy. And then when the blip all of a sudden vanishes, Dallas gets a bit spooked and turns to leave and runs smack dab into the alien kissy face. <laughs> uh, am, I, am I Claire Lambert? I want to get the hell out of here. Oh, God. It's moving right towards you. Uh... Move! Get out of there! Move! Dallas! Move, Dallas! Move, Dallas! Get out! Oh. No, not that! Wait, Dad! Wake up! Dallas? No. Dallas. Now at this point. Ripley, who's now in charge, decides to go ask Mother just how to kill the alien because Ash, well, he's not being very helpful as a science officer. As she gets her answer from Mother, she discovers that the company they all work for, which we found out in uh, the sequels, is actually Wayland uh, Utani. Utani. And, you know, what's interesting is that um, in the production design for Alien, although it's never really focused, there are in the background the Wayland Yutani symbol, the wings and mention of it. You just, you really don't see it on, on film, but the sets were decorated with that. Um, and I actually have an explanation of where that came from. Originally. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, their company, they, they recognized that the signal was a warning before that they even, uh, woke up the crew and they wanted one of the aliens brought back for study, deciding that the crew were, well, expendable, expendable yeah. <laughs> you are expendable. <laughs> uh, as Ripley turns to leave Mother, she's confronted by Ash, who's acting a bit odd. And uh, he attacks sweating milk. Ripley. Yeah, he's sweating milk. I'm thinking, <laughs> wow, that's kind of cool. So Parker comes to uh, comes quickly to the aid, to her aid, but he realizes that uh, Ash is one strong white boy. So yeah. he picks up a fire extinguisher and gives him a good smack on the head. And... Uh, you know what? The head comes off. <laughs> Bilbo's, Bilbo's head goes to flying. Yeah, it goes, flies yep. off there. I mean, whoa, that's just, you know. that. Yeah, that was another, like, one of those, like, oh, my God scene. <laughs> I know. I know. It was, you know, my wife, Joyce, had, has never seen the, the movie until I watched it uh, recently. And I didn't tell her anything. And when that happened, she was jumping like, oh, my gosh, what? Oh, yeah. he's not real. <laughs> seems you know, it seems that that the little cheeky guy Ash, he was actually a robot. Yeah. Now, my question is what happened to uh, Asimov's first law? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they definitely do harm. Yeah, they do harm, yeah. Now Ripley asks the now bodiless Ash's head how to kill the alien and he tells her, "You know what? You can't. You have my, you have my sympathies. <laughs> you have my sympathies. You suck. You're going to die." Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. So, um 
So Ripley decides to arm the self-destruct on the ship. Then he, Lambert, and Parker can escape in a shuttle. But there's, of course, one big problem. They need more coolant for the, sh- uh, the shuttle's life support system. And, of course, boom, that sets up the next uh, set of uh, cool, The next stuff. opportunity to yeah. split everyone up. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So as Ripley heads out to arm the big boom boom. And to uh, find her damn cat. <laughs> True, true story. At the one of the original screenings of the films, one of the production guys was there, and he's in there at, um, at the screening. And at that during the whole this whole sequence, someone in the back of the audience, this big booming voice goes, and I, I'll edit it so that we don't use a bad word on Trex and Sci-Fi. <laughs> said, "Leave the fracking cat!" <laughs> Yelled it out <laughs> in the middle of the theater as she was running around looking for Jonesy. <laughs> oh, I know it's 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 amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, anyway, Parker and Lambert head out to go round up some more of those uh, coolant tanks. So guess where this is going? <laughs> <laughs> of course, as Parker and Lambert go out to uh, set about collecting the tanks, they come across the alien who has other plans. He shows him his teeth, both sets. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Hearing the sounds of screaming and uh, general mayhem, Ripley, who now has the cat... <laughs> decides to investigate and uh, she comes across the bodies so she realizes that she's all alone and heads back towards the bridge oh now in another uh one of those restored deleted scenes on her way back ripley comes across a storage chamber all gooed out and and sees brett very very dead who appears mm-hmm. to be transforming into another sort of egg or something yeah there the the concept was as part of um dan o'bannon and and Shisset's original idea was that the alien would it would kill some people yeah but it would also capture people in entomb them in that uh, in that sticky stuff and actually begin to t- convert them into eggs. So it was a life cycle where you ha- you go from egg to face hugger, face hugger attaches to victim, victim gives birth to adult alien, adult alien harvests more victims together to create more eggs. And Aww. so that was that was the idea. And so what you see in that scene, that deleted scene, was Brett at the very you know his, all you can see is the top of his head and his ball cap. And then Dallas is in the earlier stages of being converted, and he begs Ripley to kill him, and uh, she flamethrowers him. Is that is that what Mufasa meant by the circle of life? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so now at this point. Uh, Ripley rushes to the shuttle with Jones. They blast away from the Stromo, and it explodes. Boom. Relaxing a bit, she undresses. Oh, sure, why not? (laughs) (laughs) And puts Jones into his own little sleep chamber, then heads over to a console to initiate the cycle, and she sees a hand reach out to her. Who who can that be? Yep. I wonder who that is. (laughs) It's the alien. Wow. He He cleverly stowed away in the lifeboat shuttle and uh, stuffed himself into a wall. (laughs) Now Ripley backs up into a locker, finds a spacesuit, which, which is one of the which is one of the things about that was so great about the the biomechanical Giger design of the alien is that it looked like it could be part of the ship. Exactly. I mean, when it was lying there, you just couldn't see it. It was it blended in so well. Oh, I know, I know. I, re- I remember the first time I saw that, it startled me because to me it just looked like one of the bulkheads. Yeah, uh-huh. it, it yeah was, and all of a sudden the hand comes stick flying out. Yeah, I know. So Ripley. Uh, uh, Climbs into the spacesuit, then uh, arms herself with a grappling hook and straps herself into a chair. Now, as the alien struggles to climb out of his hiding place, Ripley blasts him with some steam and he jumps out at her. I would too. I mean, that stuff hurts. Sure. Yeah. 
Now, before uh, he can eat her face off, she hits a button and the hatch opens and the alien is sucked out. Well, <laughs> almost sucked out. She fires a grappling hook at him, uh, hits him center mass, and he flies out the door. But then she quickly closes the door to the hatch. But, uh, uh-oh, the alien is now tethered to the shuttle by way of the hook. So as he's flopping about like a fish on a hook, <laughs> Ripley fires the engines and blasts him into little bite-sized alien bits. That's little, going to be uh, marketed by aliens, Hershey. <laughs> little alien tempura. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then she climbs into her own sleep chamber and prepares for her six-week return to the Outer Rim. Final report of the commercial starship Nostromo. Third officer reporting. The other members of the crew, Kane, Lambert, Parker, Brett, Ash, and Captain Dallas are dead. Cargo and ship destroyed. I should reach the frontier in about six weeks. With a little luck, the network will pick me up. This is Ripley, last survivor of the Nostromo. Signing off. Come on, Cap. You know, yeah, that, that give or take fifty so years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and what I found out actually in doing doing research for our show today is um, originally. Um, the film was supposed to actually just end with the destruction of the Nostromo with Ripley in the uh, the Narcissus, um, Narcissus rather, but uh, <laughs> no, the, the little shuttle that really thinks highly of itself. <laughs> so, um, but then Ridley Scott envisioned a fourth act where the alien would be on the shuttle with her and kill her. That was he, he was he was he was ready to rock and roll in film the last this fourth act of the movie and they actually had they actually went back and started film in filming with the sets they had he wanted her to die but the studios were like no 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 you can't you can't do that it's just she needs to be able to kill the aliens so but originally that was Ridley's idea was to have this fourth act and have Ridley be killed by the alien in the fourth act and then. And this really blew me away, and I've never heard this verified anywhere else, but apparently, and I read it online, that the alien would then record the final log entry in Ripley's voice. And it was like so freaky and so bizarre, but, and I'm really glad they didn't do it, because oh, so it, it, would have, it would have taken away a lot, of the, a lot of the mystery of the alien by having it actually vocalized or something, but that was originally um, part of Ridley Scott's uh, ideas, some of his crazy ideas. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So speaking of that, why don't, why don't you give us some of your uh, behind-the-scenes stuff? Sure. So Alien uh, was, as you said at the beginning, it was written by Dan O'Bannon. Um, Dan had uh, had also written the uh, the John Carpenter movie Dark Star. That was, I think, one of his first science fiction projects. And Dark Star actually shares a lot of similarities with Alien. It, they're both sort of... Um, the idea of working guys in space getting harassed by an alien. But in Dark Star, the alien was a beach ball that they had painted. Uh, I, I hate to say it, I've actually never seen Dark Star. Neither have I. 
I understand it's 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 an interesting movie. But anyway, so Dan O'Bannon came up, came, you know, did Dark Star, and then really decided he wanted to make a, a, a higher budget, better quality, um, scary space movie, and he began to write what would eventually become Alien. Um, at the same time, he met Ronald Shusett. And Ronald um, Shusset is actually was at the time working on a screenplay for Total Recall. Um, so the two of them started working together. They uh, put together the first 29 pages of a script they called Memory. So Alien began its life as a script called Memory. And basically, it, w- it, con- it was the film's opening scenes. A crew of astronauts awaken, find their voyage is interrupted because they are receiving a signal from a mysterious planetoid. They investigate, and the ship breaks down on the surface. But that's all he, that's all he had at that point. So while they're working on this, um, O'Bannon was offered to come and go to Paris to work for six months on what was then one of the first efforts to bring Dune to the big screen. Well, that project fell apart, but while he was there, um, O'Bannon had a chance to meet a couple of design guys, a guy named Chris Foss and a little uh, Swiss designer named H.R. Giger. And uh, O'Bannon was really impressed by both Foss's work and Giger's work, especially Giger's paintings. I mean, he found them really troubling and very disturbing. And he also realized, hey, this is, this is my alien. He, he, he sort of really felt strongly that, that, the, that Giger's necromancer um, alien design in, that, in the, that painting he did, that, w- that horrible image really stuck with Dan O'Bannon. That became his, pro- his antagonist for Alien. So he, get, he, he comes back to Los Angeles. Dune falls apart. It's, this is not the David Lynch Dune. This was one that, that was during the 70s that they were trying to work, and work on. Yeah. So um, there's a great little quote here. So they, you know, they get the idea. Shusset and, and O'Bannon, they, they're living together. Um, and they get the idea of, about making this movie, this script memory for the second half, make it more about like um, a gremlin in, invading a B-17 bomber, was sort of, but make it on a spaceship. So they changed the working title from memory to Star Beast, and then eventually they changed it to Alien because the word alien just kept appearing in the script all the time. Yeah, and Star Beast just sounds unfortunate. <laughs> it sounds so B-movie. Yeah. Um, t- right around this time, when they, so they're starting to move forward with this idea that, okay, we, we, they did the first part of the film where they get stranded. Now they're going to do this whole thing about this sort of almost a haunted house in space with this malevolent creature running around terrorizing the crew. Um, Shusset came up with the idea of the chestburster. He, you know, they were trying to figure out how do we get the alien into the ship or on the ship, and he came up with the idea that it, it would incubate inside one of the crew and burst out. So that was all. That was his idea. Um, O'Bannon is famous for for saying, and he says this in the uh, making of documentary. And this is a quote: "I didn't steal alien from anybody. I stole it from everybody." So, <laughs> He said, the thing from another world inspired the idea of professional men being pursued by a deadly alien creature <clears throat> through a claustrophobic environment. Forbidden Planet gave O'Bannon the idea of a ship being warned not to land and then the crew being killed one by one by a mysterious creature when they defy the warning. Um, so he, he, he was, it's, very, it's derivative, and he totally acknowledges that. But you know, I think we can all agree that although it's derivative, the presentation... And the story is is terrific. And then what really makes it obviously are the are the visuals and what Ridley Scott brought to the table to to sort of flesh this whole world out. Absolutely. So so now they've got a they've got a a, a script basically. So they now they need to shop it around. Um, 
they went around to a bunch of studios pitching it basically as Jaws in space because there was you know Star Wars hadn't happened yet, so they're like you know here it's just like it's like a you know it's like Jaws in space. So people are getting eaten, eaten and stuff like that, and they were on the verge of signing with Roger Corman. So you can imagine Roger Corman obviously is the king of the schlock B right. movie. So Alien was that close to being a real being a, a real B movie type of production when it landed on the desk of, of three guys, Walter Hill, David Geiler, Giller, and Gordon Carroll, who had just formed a, a production company called Brandywine oh. with ties to 20th Century Fox. They loved the script, and they signed, so they signed O'Bannon and Schuster up with, um, to Brandywine and immediately began to make some revisions on the script. Unfortunately, this is kind of where the story goes a little bit south in regards to Dan O'Bannon's relationship with the production of the, of the movie, because there were a lot of rewrites. Um, the, the Giller and Hill brought in the, the idea of Ash as, a, um, as being a, a, this, the, and, the, the android on the, on the ship under, under the control of the company. Um, O'Bannon hated the idea, although later on, Shusset said, hey, that was, that was one of the best things that was in the movie. So, and O'Bannon really felt like he was getting kind of pushed out. He also wanted to, do, to direct, um, but, they, but the guys at Brandywine were really not interested in having him direct. So there was some bad blood. I, 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 got, I definitely get the impression in watching some of the documentaries on the DVDs that uh, O'Bannon had a little resentment about that. But Anyway, so Brandywine has this pro- has the script. They've they've you know they budgeted for something like I don't know they've got four million bucks. <laughs> Star Wars comes out and the the world's never the same. So Star Wars comes out and all of a sudden Brandywine and 20th Century Fox are like we we got to get our space movie out now. So they immediately pick up Alien off of the desk and they kick the budget up to about eight eight and a half million bucks. And immediately look for a director, and uh, that's when they found Ridley. Um, I think that Hill and Carroll knew Ridley Scott from his work in his feature film, The Duelist, and they were really impressed by that. So they asked Scott if he would direct it. Scott immediately was drawn to the story and the script and began to do something that I don't know if a lot of people are aware of this, but Ridley Scott is a quite a talented uh, artist, and he can he creates storyboards of of the movie. He did this with Alien, he did this with Blade Runner, where literally he would draw out the scenes and he would drew, the way he drew them out, if you go back and look at the way that Ridley Scott storyboarded Alien, it looks just like what we got. I mean, it's really <laughs> remarkable that he did this a couple of years before they even started creating sets and filming. Um, so anyway, uh, O'Bannon introduced Ridley to Giger and said, this is the guy we want for creating our alien and Ridley looked at Giger's work and was sold and Gordon Carroll looked at Giger's work and was like that guy is one sick bastard but (laughs) sold so they brought Giger in Um, the other person brought in that from O'Bannon's past was um, Ron Cobb and Chris Foss Um, both have worked he had worked on with on Dark Star and Dune and uh, Cobb was basically was basically given the job of designing Everything that was um, Nostromo and the human-related, and Giger was given the responsibility of designing everything alien and the derelict and the eggs and the face hugger and the chestburster. So that was the delineation of, of the art design for the movie. So Scott had, the, had those two guys working on, on those two aspects of it. 
And Cobb really was not only a, a student of Mobius and all of these great graphic design guys and science fiction artists of the 70s, um, but he really appreciated what um, the production team at Star Wars had done to make the quote-unquote lived-in looking universe where they would go out and they'd find fine pa found parts in junkyards and airplane graveyards and they'd stick it up on, on the walls of their ship on the interior just to make things look like they were really well used and worn out and oily and dirty. So again, Star Wars, the, the influence of that look from Star Wars had an immediate impact on Alien. And I'd suggest that Alien took that look and Ridley Scott took that look to a whole different level. I mean, you walk around, you look at the sets of the Nostromo, and it, nothing feels more like a working ship. I mean, it right. literally looks like it, 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 would, it could actually function. It's really remarkable. When they built the sets for the Nostromo, they actually built the whole thing. So in other words, the Nostromo set wasn't just one room, and then you'd walk across the soundstage to another room. It was all connected by those corridors. So once you walked onto the set, you were on the Nostromo, and you never left until you were done shooting. And it, it gave the cast and the, even the production team the feeling that they were all on board this ship. It was very claustrophobic. Ridley Scott is very famous for using a lot of smoke to create a lot of ambient lighting. And it was apparently an incredibly difficult shoot because it was just, it was hot and it was stinky and you were covered in this crap and, the, and he, he's putting glycerin on, on all the actors and on the alien and on the walls. And it, it was apparently really very realistic for a lot of these people. Well, they? I would imagine that, that that would also go a long way to to helping the, the actors get into the character. I mean, absolutely get yeah. locked into the, I think that's probably part of the reasons why this movie was so successful. Absolutely. And, and, and that's a great point. Now, and also it reminds me that uh, although the film was very tightly scripted, a lot of what we see on film was actually ad-libbed in terms of a lot. If you watch the, uh, the breakfast scene or the, or the final meal mm -hmm. scene with Kane, um, or even when, when Ripley and, and Parker are fighting after Dallas is killed, it basically, it really just said, okay, you're, you're eating and just talk. And, you, and you, 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 when you watch it, you get the impression it doesn't feel scripted. It feels very natural. It does. And if, it almost feels awkward in a, in, a, in a way because you expect it to be this scripted flowing conversation, and yet it's not. But that kind of makes it more real. By the way, that's my ringtone. Isn't that great? It's Darth Vader's March <laughs> ringtone. <laughs> but that kind of makes the whole thing seem even more real, you know, and it gives it that just that visceral sense that these are real people. They're, you know, they're not, they're not amoral. They're, they're, or they are amoral. They're not heroes. They're not villains. They're just dudes wanting to be done. Parker, Parker and, um, and Brett, you know, are the engineering guys and they're getting a raw deal and they're complaining about it. And, you know, you get to get that whole, that whole feeling from all of them. Um, one of the things that another thing that Ridley Scott did in, in terms of filming to, to create that level of, of realism and tension between the characters is that you know the casting of Sigourney Weaver was a big deal O'Bannon wrote all the characters to be asexual in other words he only wrote last names he didn't, he didn't shoehorn Ridley Scott into making any character a man or a woman so when it came time for casting Ripley could easily have been a man but Ridley Scott decided he wanted to make Ripley a woman. And when he met Sigourney Weaver, he was like, that's it. That's our Ripley. Um, but, you know, Sigourney was, was really green. Yafit Kodo, though, he was not green. He, he had a following. He had done James Bond. He was, and he was a big, you know, aggressive, 
guy. And that scene where, you, where they're fighting and trying to decide what to do after Dallas is killed, Ridley Scott took Yafit aside and was like, listen, I want you to just piss off Sigourney. He's like, I want you to yell at her. And before they even started filming or when they're doing the practice takes for that scene, Yafit was like, hey, I got a following. People know who I am and you don't, you're nothing. And what are you going to do? What are you going to do about getting us off this ship? I mean, and like Sigourney Weaver was about to have a, a breakdown. And you can, but you can see that in her performance where she's like, would you listen to me? When she's yelling at him, you know, that, that tension on her face, it was all real. You know, that wasn't, it wasn't acting. It was, Yafit Koto actually got her all wrapped up and got her all, you know, into that, into that scene and into the mindset of what was, of the tension of what was going on. Um, so just, I mean, really, really cool stuff like that. A lot of which I learned again on the, uh, on the making of DVDs. So now, do you think he was really being a diva or was he, was, was he just using that as a way to, to get her, um, to really pour herself into that into that scene, both because <laughs> I, I think he was definitely interested in getting the best out of the performance um, Yafit was. But when it, when you say Yafit was a diva, Ridley Scott tells a story about he used to like have to ask people every morning, "Where is Yafit? What entrance of the set is he?" Because every morning Yafit would come up to him and go, hey, what about me killing the alien? I want to kill the alien. I don't want to go out like a punk. And so Yafit was really, really interested, didn't want to have to be like, like go out with a punk. He, he wanted, in his scene with Lambert, in that, in that, clo- in that, that closet area where, where the alien gets them, mm-hmm. he wanted to, to reach in and grab the alien's tongue and rip it out. I mean, he, want, he, he really wanted his scene to be pretty, pretty memorable. And Ridley's like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do with this guy? But uh, so, no, it was, it was, it was, it was funny that uh, you know, he, he definitely brought a lot of that. Um, and speaking of the, of the realism aspect, going back to the chestburster scene, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, stories about that I know out, out in the world. I, what I've sort of been able to put together is that the cast knew what was going to happen. They knew that the alien was going to come out of Kane's chest and make this appearance. What they didn't realize was that Ridley had basically rigged the artificial torso of Kane that they had on the table with these, with these, these uh, hoses with fake blood in it <laughs> that were hooked up to like high pressure tanks. So when the alien, so, and so they set the scene up, they cover the entire set and all the cameras with plastic. They bring the actors in, they start filming the scene. When he fires off the blood and it sprays everywhere, uh, one, of the, one of them shot directly into Veronica Cartwright's face. So when you see her screaming, and then you, you, what you don't see is she actually falls over, head over her heels. I mean, you see her, boot, her cowboy boots come flying up in the air in a, in a, in a longer um, uh, look a long shot, yeah. yeah, and it's just hysterical. I mean, she had no; she was g- genuinely terrified and startled. She had no idea that was coming, and her That's reaction awesome. really, really sold that scene. But uh, um, and yeah, and then you know, even even the use of Jones, even the use of Jones for the for for Brett's you know kitty 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 scene. I mean that 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 is like five minutes where Ridley you know just lets that scene go on and on, and it's. All you hear is the dripping of water and the clanking of chains, and he's walking around, and the only sound, there's no music, the only sound is the sound of a heartbeat. 
yeah. and just playing in the background and he's looking and you it's just i mean i get goosebumps just thinking about that scene right now because it's some people may go oh it's it take it, it you know, he walks around for five minutes and then he gets killed but him walking around for five minutes just ratchets up the tension so much it's mm-hmm. just it's just incredible um oh the wayland uh yutani wayland yutani came um cobb the set designer wayland came from the British um, Leyland Motor Corporation. So he took Wayland fr- came from Leyland. And Yutani was the name of his Japanese neighbor. So that's where those... <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought that was interesting. I didn't realize that. Um, so yeah, so we, you know, getting over to now to what the work that Giger did, um, everything that Giger did had to do with the aliens. So he create, they created that entire set um, with the space jockey and all of the interiors for the derelict spaceship. And then, of course, you know, the incredible work that he did on the actual alien costume itself. Um, there was, there was a, a full costume that, um, oh, what's his name again? Um, how do you pronounce his first name? The, uh, the actor who played him. Um, Bole. Bole, oh, yeah. Bole Badejo. So Bole, you know, he, was, he, he wore the, cost, the, the, the hero costume. And then they also had a, a smaller stunt costume that one of the stuntmen wore for, like, when the alien lowered itself towards where Brett um, was walking around. That was, that was the stuntman in there. Um, and also for the scene at the end where the alien's hanging out the back of the shuttle. But um, one of the things that Ridley had um, Badeo do is he really wanted to get away from the idea that this was a guy in a suit. He was terrified that if you saw the alien and it looked like a dude in a rubber suit, the movie was going to really suffer because of <laughs> Um, and it was tough, though, not to have it look like that. So what he had, what he had him do, what he had Badeo do is, is basically learn things like Tai Chi and stuff and make all of his movements very purposeful and slow. So whenever, whenever you know, we don't see a lot of the alien inten- intentionally because I think, you know, St- Steven Spielberg showed in Jaws that sometimes when, you're, when what you got doesn't look that great, just don't show it very much and people get more scared. Exactly. The suggestion of the actual thing right. freaks so, you out. He didn't show. He intentionally doesn't show the alien that much, and and holds back. Um, just shows you parts of it. Shows you the mouth opening. Shows you the hands reaching out. Um, but as you're going through the film, it get, you can see more and more of it. And because of these very odd movements that Badejo does, it it doesn't. It looks unhuman. It doesn't look like a like a person moving. In fact, in the scene with with um, with Parker and Lambert. Um, there's, uh, they actually filmed Badeo coming into that room, and you don't see it in the movie, but he was on basically all fours on his hands and his feet, but like bent over backwards and oh. with the tail sticking in front of him. And it's just, it's just the strangest looking thing, and he scurries into the room that way. <laughs> but again, it was, it was an effort to make it so that the alien was just so bizarre and then what they and then another designer um i can't remember the guy's name actually designed this the head uh, a hero version of the head with the working teeth the lips the the jaws and then the inner teeth and then the tongue that comes out from that um so they they had a separate head that did all that and uh um so yeah, no, it's it was just you know all everything to do with with the making of the film and design of the film just just makes it so realistic and and makes it just you you just you really feel like you are part of this world and uh, you know really Scott just did an outstanding job in in drawing us all into this world and uh, it was it was terrifying this this movie just scared the bejesus out of me as a kid <laughs> I mean it really did and and I wasn't even old enough to see it when it first came out I was. 
I mean, I was 11, I guess, and 12 and 79, you know, 11. And uh, I can just, I just remember things like the, the, the marketing, the poster, I mean, mm-hmm. the egg and in space, no one can hear you scream. All I, I was, I love Star Trek and I love Star Wars. And here's this movie in science fiction movie, but it was scary. And I had never even thought of something like that. And, uh, but I was, it, I, I was just fascinated by the whole, the whole concept of it. And, uh, it was. It was. It wasn't until a couple years later they actually got to see it. But at that point, I'd you know read the book. The book was actually done by. Um, um, oh gosh, I'm, I'm blanking on his name. The guy who wrote uh, who did Splinter of the Mind's Eye. Um, no, everyone's probably out there yelling at me. <laughs> who did? Who wrote Splinter of the Mind's Eye? The science fiction writer. Um, oh god, that's gonna bother me. <laughs> oh, oh oh oh, Peter David. No, was not it, Peter David. You sure? Uh, yeah. No. Um, it was. Uh, Oh, I'll look it up while I'm talking. Would you please? <laughs> so, it, but anyway, it, the and, and the there was a book. There was a um, heavy metal did a comic version of Alien that I read, and even there was a um, a photo book of the entire movie that came out in '79. That was the basically the screenplay. Alan Dean photo- Foster. Thank you, Alan Dean Foster. <laughs> Jesus, good lord! And uh, I read that book too. I can't believe. Yeah, he and, he, and Alan Dean Foster is a huge science Absolutely. fiction writer. He you know he lives here in Arizona. I did not know that. He does. Yep. He does. I love he's his there. stuff. I know. He's uh, he lives, I think he lives down in Tucson. Let's go. Anyway, let's so, go. Let's go. Let's go. Yeah, and, uh, let's go him. <laughs> stalk him. So, um, but yeah, I'm, I remember that the picture book of Alien. And so basically, it was the entire movie in photographs. Right. So I could actually see the chestburster scene in still photographs. And it was just, I was so into it. I built, I built the model of the alien. I did all of this when I was, before I even saw the film. So it, it definitely had a big impact. It did. And I, it's funny that you, you mentioned that picture book because I, I was the same way. Uh, you and I are fairly close in, in age. I mean, mm-hmm. they're several years apart, but... Uh, I remember being a kid, and uh, you know, I wasn't allowed to see the movie either because it was rated R, and um, so that was it. But in the apartment complex that I that I lived in with my you know with my father and my sister, uh, it was kind of weird because this was back east in, in Ohio. Uh-huh. Um, th- several different buildings, and the buildings all had kind of like a basement area. Now the washrooms, the locker rooms and all that stuff, the laundry rooms were all in the basement. And these basements were kind of like tunnels that linked all of the the buildings. Right. Well, me and a bunch of friends uh, used to hang out down there. You know, it was like our fort area. And I remember my introduction to Alien, one of my friends had that picture book. And, um, you know, it was forbidden. You know, he had gotten yeah. it from a friend. And uh-huh. we're all looking at it. And getting all excited about it and eventually i did go uh, i mean you know i got to see the movie when it came out on uh, uh vhs tape yes way back in the 1800s oh, I, I got you beat i saw it on betamax <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> but looking back on it i realize that it, how silly this was because most kids you know that age when they're huddled over a book, you know, in private, they're looking at something, giggling, getting all excited. They're looking at different kinds of books. Yeah, I know. Right? Exactly. <laughs> but here, I'm getting all excited and geeked out on this on this uh, science fiction thing. And yep. uh, and when I finally did get to go see, I mean, when I finally did see the movie, uh, I I knew a lot about what was going to happen, but it still freaked me out, and I still jumped. And uh, I think, you know, quite honestly, I think between Star Trek and Alien. That was kind of what cemented my my whole sci-fi geekdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, it's it, it was just it's it's just an amazing movie, and uh, you know one one that just it, it, uh, that means a lot to me. Obviously, you can tell. Like, I mean, I, I know I've been talking a lot, but it's just something I'm really passionate about. It really th- th- that it had it just had a, a, a huge effect on me. Not not in terms. And it, it's weird to say that because I'm not a horror movie fan <laughs> at all. I mean, I and I'm not into gross out kind of stuff. But I think Alien just presented again at a time in my life where science fiction was action adventure mm-hmm. all of a sudden science fiction could also be dark and dangerous and right you know, exactly I, and i felt that in a very very you know visceral way watching this movie and you know the the alien creature itself really just uh, the the what what Giger did with that design and bringing that to, and then what Scott did bringing that to the screen the the look of the alien just it just blew me away and i was just so fascinated by this because again it, he he made it so that it it just wasn't it looked it was so otherworldly and there was just something about it that just resonated very strongly with me and and that's why even when Cameron came back to do Aliens, and maybe you know, hopefully you and I can maybe do that sure. um, down, sometime down the road. You know, there he he redid the 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 creature. Uh, like I can tell the difference between an, the alien from the first movie and the aliens from the second mm-hmm. in terms of their design. And I don't like the aliens in the second. There were there were design compromises that were made by Cameron simply because he wanted them to be more mobile and you know he wanted them to be tumbling and jumping and leaping which was visually fantastic I'm not I, I don't criticize that but my alien the alien that scared me was that <laughs> alien that when Ripley is trying to escape from the Nostromo and mother is counting down to the to the explosion of the engines and she's she's against that she's leaning against that 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 wall and you see her and she's coming around the corner and her face is covered in sweat and she looks up and you see this flashing strobe light down the hallway and you see the alien and it's, it's not just standing there it's actually kind of just bent over almost like it's it's like resting mm-hmm. and it's just perfectly still and as soon as she as soon as it, she rounds that corner it shoots it stands up really quickly and it's just like oh my god and it was just <laughs> it was stuff like that that just makes it that made that alien just so like scary to me, and maybe it was the fact that it was hard to see, and you can never see it. To this day, if I stumble across like a picture of, of the original Alien costume that I've never seen, it just blows me away. I love it. You know, I just love <laughs> to see all that kind of stuff. Um, and you and I were talking before we started recording a little bit about, and now you know, after all these years, after so much time has gone by, after a number of, of movies, and even it's created a whole franchise has gone by. Revisiting the movie, how does the movie seem to you? Revisiting it now, all these years later. Well, you know, I like the movie. I, I love the story, and and I, I just think that it was incredibly groundbreaking. Um, but I, I think that the film, to me, seems a little you know dated. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is not necessarily the story or you know anything like that. What I mean by dated is that um, obviously all of the the computers and things that they have in this uh, in this in this movie are, are supposed to represent the future, right? But they're just so very dated. The the old Commodore, you know, Commodore <laughs> yeah. computers and yeah. things like that. You um, know, you know. Um, not, not to interrupt you, but no. just make me realize something that that do you know this? The when they are first land landing on the on the planet LV, whatever it is, and mm-hmm. you see a graphic of of the ship. Like it's it's the ship's rotating and they're right. they're flying over. It's like a and it's a computer generated graphic that was like. 
that was like state of the art. No one had ever done that. Was like Lucas did the did the 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 Death Star animation thing at the Rebel briefing in Star Wars. That was the first time a computer generated image was ever used in a movie, right. and. Ridley Scott took that and then th- and then he did that those those kind of scenes. But you're right, the computers are are uh, definitely are antiquated um, and definitely have you know have a don't, uh, you know have a feel that does date that does date the film for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and that's that's what I meant by dated. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't mean that the story uh, the story was dated because although you know it could be easy, especially for somebody let's say, a, a younger generation who goes back and, and watches this movie for the first time, you know, you can see how they would say, oh, that is just, you know, yeah. boring because yeah. we see so much. But what, what Oh, you- yeah, no, and, and, and nothing nothing happens in this movie for the first hour. Oh. I mean, literally. I mean, it's, it's them having breakfast and then it's mm-hmm. them getting the signal and then it's them landing on the planet and then it's them breaking the ship and then it's them walking on the, <laughs> on the surface of the planet and then finding the egg. It's not until the, the, the facehugger scene with Kane that the movie starts to actually, and then even then, they go back and they sit around and talk about it for a while. Um, you're, you're right. It, it is very purposeful. It's very slow moving at the mm-hmm. beginning. Honestly, do I mean? Let, let me ask you this: Do you think that if they, if that had never been done, that movie had never been done in 1979, somebody comes up with the idea and and writes that script exactly ha- as it was written, produces that film exactly as it was produced in 1979 today, would it be successful? Probably not. You know, I, 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 I and I, I see your point. Yeah, it's it. Although it's difficult to imagine because I guess you'd have to assume at that point that. There would have been it would have felt original enough, but clearly at this point, if that film was made today, so there been, it's like an archetype, and so mm-hmm. many other films have been done that have drawn upon that both both visually and from a story standpoint. That you're right, it would not, it certainly would not feel new, it would not feel fresh, and it probably would not be a big blockbuster because I think I think our aesthetics have changed, our our expectations of what we get from our cinema going experience especially when it comes to a film that's science fiction in nature you know that bar is is off is is in a totally different world than what you have with an alien alien is 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 the world of practical effects real sets you know no blue screens and you know there's there's but for me for me there's a there I still get a visceral sense of realism that from a from the core, the the opening scene where the camera is going through the empty, silent corridors of the Nostromo, that that it's dated, and you you know it's a set, and you could probably do ten times more with a blue screen, but that that appeals to me so much more. I I get more emotional connection to that as a viewer than I do out of the blue screen stuff that we see in like the prequels of star Wars and, and all the newer films. And they look, they look spectacular. It's not, it's not a question of whether they look better. You're sure they look better, but they don't look, they don't look as real to me, obviously. And, and the miniature work and the model work that they did for alien. I mean, the, the, the Nostromo was a 15 foot model. They made this huge model of the, of the thing. And, and, uh, and the, the landing claws um, when they when they land on the planet and the and they they go down. Did, did a funny story about those landing claws? They actually built them on set and they built that whole planetscape on set. Um, uh, the landing claws that they built, though, Ridley Scott shows up. He looks at them. He goes, 
they're too small. I mean, they're, they're way too small. So instead of scaling up the landing clause and spending more money, he, he got three kids, two of which were his own, to play the astronauts. So he made, <laughs> he made the people smaller to make the landing claw look bigger. You know, so in that scene where they're being lowered on the elevator, that's Ridley Scott's two kids and this other kid in, in little mini, mini spacesuits. And now that now you say that, because uh, I remember when I was just, when I rewatched it last weekend, um, I thought that they looked kind of funny. Yeah, you know, the they, way they, they move, move and everything. They move like little kids. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely right. <laughs> that's awesome. That that's yeah. an awesome little tidbit. I love that. Yeah. So I mean, so it, you know, I so when I'm watching that, you know, that 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 seems real. The 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 a the 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 scene where Kane has the 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 face hugger attached to him. Do you, that was it it was a, a translucent egg. And if you notice when Kane first t- looks at it. You actually see water dripping mm-hmm. up right. off of it, right. and that was just something really put in there. He's like, "Hang it upside down. We'll drop. We'll, we'll drip water off of it, and I'll flip it back right side up, just to make it weird, just to make it look bizarre." And then in, inside, he filled it with like with with sheep intestine and all of this crap he got at a butcher shop, and then he put his hands up in there to flutter them back and forth. And if you actually slow down the scene where it leaps out. You actually can frame by frame see it hit the faceplate of his helmet. Then you see from inside the helmet, you see the the tongue coming out of the face hugger, shooting towards you, the audience, which is Kane's face, and then him falling backwards. So he actually took the time to actually film that. It happens so quickly in the movie, you never realize what exactly happened. You know that it hit his helmet. But they actually, he went through the effort to actually show that it actually burns its way through his helmet and shoots this thing out that goes into his mouth. That is amazing. Yeah, and if you go, you go back and watch the um, the featurette, the, um, which is called Star Beast: The Making of Alien. They actually have that whole sequence slowed down so you can see it. It's really remarkable. I mean, he actually, you know, spent the time to make it to make it look that way and make it look cool like that. Um, so yeah, so no, I, I see what you mean about the computers and stuff being making the film <laughs> seem dated. I guess to me. All that stuff just makes it look like use used real world technology. Yeah, Good it's dated. I, I appreciate that it's dated. It's it's funky and it's it's single line code going across the screen like. <laughs> but and, and not and not matrix code either. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and you, you can't and you can't obviously knock the longevity of of what the, what the franchise it became. I mean, you know, and I think though. I think a lot of that credit needs to also go to James Cameron because, oh, yeah. I, I mean, Alien wasn't a movie screaming to become a franchise. Aliens was. Mm-hmm. Aliens was clearly a, a, a film that was going to spawn or could keep a whole world of this going on. And uh, um, so, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, I'm and sure Ridley Scott <laughs> had no idea that it was going to, you know, ha- have that kind of a lasting impact. And, it, and now... He's revisiting it, sort of, with Prometheus, which is going to be very, very cool. I got to say, Prometheus is probably my most anticipated film for the 2012 right now. Absolutely, I I'm looking forward to it as well. I I think, you know, I think there's a lot of people who are 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 so incredibly interested to find out, you know, what he's going to do with this. And uh, okay, well, that's that's. Uh, amazing stuff um now when alien first came out uh you, you gotta you gotta remember that you know 1979 this type of movie may not have been uh, a big box office draw but uh i think that the that the total budget to to create this film was like nine million dollars and on the first weekend it brought in 3.5 million dollars 
Huge success. It, it, when you, yeah, because when you think about it, nineteen seventy nine dollars. You know, three point five million in the first and, weekend, and a rated R movie. Exactly, nineteen seventy nine. That's that. That was a big deal. It was absolutely because yeah. up to that point, rated R movies were uh, you know something that you wanted to see alone. <laughs> it got. In fact, I, I see here it, it received an X in the UK and an M in Australia, which I, I assume is for mature. That's interesting. <laughs> I don't know. You know how those Brits are. Yeah, <laughs> Simon. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, th- I think the total domestic gross was like a little over well it was just a shade under 81 million dollars and then the worldwide box office was uh 203 million 630 uh million 203 million 630,000 which i mean when you stack that up against well it's not adjusted for inflation so, exactly yeah. yeah and then when you know you had a budget of 9 million dollars to make this film i i think you can you could call it a success Absolutely, yeah. No, I mean, a success for really everyone involved. I mean, it certainly put Sigourney Weaver on the map. It put uh, Ridley Scott on the map, and he immediately, you know, even though he, even though I know he was reluctant to do so, stepped into Blade Runner after this. Um, even though he, he he didn't want to do another sci-fi movie so quickly, but uh, you know that it created an entire aesthetic, um, and you know it, it really had a tremendous amount of influence. Even had a really terrific score by Jerry Goldsmith. Oh yeah. Yeah, the, the music. Now I'm a big, you know, I'm a huge uh, soundtrack fan. I yep. love motion picture soundtrack, and this is definitely one of the ones that I have on my iPod. And you know, but you know, it's a little unfortunate, and it, it, it goes along the lines of the um, the issues Dan O'Bannon had with uh, with Brandywine, and the fact that they did a lot of rewrites, and he felt like they were changing his script and pushing him out a little bit. But um, Scott did not initially like some of Goldsmith's work and Ridley went back and they re-recorded a few of of the scenes and Jerry Goldsmith I think to this day I, I think he's forgiven him because I think correct me if I'm wrong did Jerry Goldsmith score Gladiator? Uh, I don't know. think so no. Okay, well, there was there was definitely some bad blood there as well because um, of some changes that were made. Because I, I, and and from what I what I've heard of the original music that Jerry did for some of the scenes, it was a little too much. I mean, there was a subtlety about a lot of the back about some of the music or lack thereof in in the film. Um, and I do the the initial the the opening scene credits I think are terrific, but a lot of Jerry's score was taken out of the final cut by Ridley. And uh, it did cause a little bit of a, some bad blood between them, I guess. Actually, the, the, the Gladiator soundtrack was done by Hans Zimmer. Hans, oh, that's yeah, right. I just oh, saw that. Oh, you know who was? Vartok was yes. probably screaming. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Sorry, Vartok. I should have known that. I listened to uh, I listened to Pandora, and I and I have a, a, a musical score uh, channel on Pandora, and a lot of music from. Um, Gladiator comes up all the time, so you think yeah. I would know that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> Well, Al, this has been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed taking this walk down uh, Amnesia Lane. Absolutely. It's such a great film. But it's, a, it's just looking back on this and, and revisiting some of this stuff. It just, I, I, again, it's a, it was a movie that really means a lot to me and uh, means a lot to my fandom. And, uh, um, you know, in my closet, I have an 18-inch alien figure from the first movie <laughs> that's so cool and detailed. And I got a model of the Nostromo in there. And uh, it's, it's, it really it's one of those touchstone films for me for sure absolutely I'm, i've seen i've seen pictures of your nostromo okay that just didn't sound right but you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> you leave my nostromo out of it now. that's right that's right yeah um we did get a um we've got an, an amazing uh great comment from our good friend rick moyer 
The year was 1979. I was going into the eighth grade and was not uh, allowed to go see this movie in the movie theater because it was rated R. So I wasn't allowed to go see the movie. Now, we happened to get the cable out our way. We lived out in the country, and we finally got cable TV. And along with that package came HBO. And HBO showed the movie a little bit further into the to the run of it, obviously. You know, they had to wait till it was done in the theaters. And I got to watch Alien for the very first time. Now, being a science fiction fan and monster fan and thriller fan all at the same time, watching this movie, I was on the edge of my seat the entire time. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. It was so scary. I mean, literally a horror movie in space. And I remember uh, seeing the, the, when we found out the one character was an android and seeing the stuff go all over the place. And then uh, that was like fascinating to me. But the, the scene that really got me was, of course, you know, when the, when the alien burst through the guy's chest, that was shocking. It was gross. It was cool. And it was wild all at the same time. And I just, I couldn't believe it. But the, I think the cool part about this movie and the reason it was so scary and so on the edge of our seat is that we never really saw a huge picture of the alien. I mean, we didn't, it was done, the filming was done in such a way like the old horror movies where you barely see little glimpses of it. And I think that made you have a bigger imagination when it came, you know, to the movie. But uh, what what a fascinating movie and scary! So, I just thought it was cool to see the ships and the the sets was the set was awesome. I loved it when they went down to the planet. Um, that was so eerie and strange, and the the artwork was so amazing. Really believable, great movie, and of course Sigourney Weaver just kicked butt, and that was always cool. But um, the little kitty, I liked the kitty too. That was fun. Anyway, there you go. My comments on Alien. Really, really loved the the movie. It was uh, right down this science fiction fan's alley. (laughs) So thanks, you guys, for doing the big review of Alien. That's awesome. I'm going to leave you with something really cool because what I also liked about the movie was the cool, eerie soundtrack that they had. So I'm going to leave you with a little bit of the end title of Alien. Really cool music. This is Rick Moyer saying thank you guys for covering Alien. Have a great one. Oh, that was great, Rick. <laughs> nice little segue too, having the uh, the music is there that we we're just talking about the cherry, from the Cherry Goldsmith score. And uh, yeah, I, I, you're so right. I mean, there's there's so much about about Alien that was so unique from the chestburster to the alien itself, and the fact that you didn't see the alien. You know, I gotta say that the first time those teeth. It opens its mouth and those teeth, and then the teeth come flying out and into Brett's head. You're like, "Oh my God, what was that?" It's all of that stuff. Just make it was just so so unique and uh, and original at the time, and it was just uh, it was great. I 
I definitely had a, a similar reaction. Although it's it's great to hear your comments and your thoughts on it because I was so spoiled. I mean, mm-hmm. I knew this movie inside and out by the time I saw it. Uh, but it's fun to hear hear your reaction to it as someone who saw it for the first time. And and we're older. Not that you're old, Rick. Excuse me, I didn't mean to imply that at all. But that you were old enough to actually sort of appreciate it as a science fiction film, and uh, and you know look at it that way. And uh, so, thanks very much for your comments. Yeah, and I, I kind of figured he would uh, he would uh, gravitate towards the cat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here, kitty, 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 kitty. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is this has been awesome, Brian. Uh, I, I am so I'm so gra- uh, glad that you um, that you asked me to join you. Uh, for this podcast, uh, it's a lot of fun. I I enjoy uh, doing this with you. Absolutely, this is this was again. This is my this is my first full podcast that I've ever done in my and entire life. Let me tell <laughs> and, you, you've done an amazing job. Well, I appreciate that, and uh, obviously, uh, a big thank you to uh, Rico um, for letting us jump on here and uh, have some fun for an hour talking about a great movie. And uh, you know, I know he's uh, looking to take a little more time time for himself, and uh, I hope that uh, all. All of us in the in the local community can continue to support the show as we always do and uh, provide additional content and different content for uh, for our family over at Trex and Sci-Fi. My name is Al. And I'm Joyce. And we're We're huge huge Disneyland Disneyland fans. fans. In fact, we love the Disneyland Resort so much, we host a podcast dedicated to the happiest place on earth to share that passion with others. That's right. On our show, Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland Podcast, we share current resort news, some tips and tricks we've learned over the years to help make your Disneyland Resort vacation the most magical experience ever. We uncover little-known and often-overlooked gems we like to call hidden treasures and even review the attractions and places to eat that make the Disneyland Resort so much fun. And if that wasn't enough, we even share some video episodes to help keep you in that Disney magic state of mind. If you're a longtime fan of the Disneyland Resort or you've just recently discovered the magic, this podcast is for you. You can find Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland Podcast at www. .talescast.com and in iTunes. And remember, make make it it a a Mickey Mickey day. day.